Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone out this morning, and those who join us online, it's good that you're here. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles, please open up to Romans chapter 1, as we continue our journey through Romans. And for those who are at home, if you wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles as well. Romans chapter 1. Then if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to read just three verses, although we're going to just get one. Let me read. We'll start at verse 18 and we'll read through verse 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to present ourselves to you. Holy, we ask that your spirit in his secret way would work in our hearts today. As your word is shared, I pray, Father, that you would do this for your glory and for our good. We do pray that, Father, that your name is honored and that the name of Jesus is honored above all. We pray, Father, that if there's anything that I have left unconfessed that would stand in the way of me being a tool in your hands today, that you would pardon my sin, iniquity, trespasses so that I may be used of you to minister to your people, so that your spirit may speak through me to them. And I pray, Lord, that you would do the same for them so that they may hear from you. Lord, we desire to benefit from your word so that we may live lives that please you. We know this is not possible without aid from you. We need your internal workings to direct us, to transform us, to look just like Jesus. Father, we ask these requests humbling as your servants, as your children whom you have adopted into your family. Not because of our worthiness, but because of Christ's worthiness. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Let me open with a story that Al Mohler shared, which is a true story. On the quiet street in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the authorities came to the home of an elderly man, a gentleman who had reached the age of 94 years. And there, when they found him in his home, they arrested him, even though he had been living there for many decades. The neighbors were surprised. They could not have imagined that the man they had been living next to for several decades had actually been an active collaborator in one of the worst instances of the Second World War. When he was taken to court, federal prosecutors convinced the courts that Mr. Berger had formerly, earlier in life, been part of the SS machinery of oppression that had kept prisoners in atrocious conditions of confinement. 
This confinement, of course, led to injury and the emaciation of prisoners and, of, and unfortunately for many of them to their very deaths. Mr. Berger, who was now 94 years old, probably never imagined that he would be in this position. He probably thought that at this age he had escaped his past and that he would die in peace in his ranch home there in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. But something had happened, some events had started to transpire that he was unaware of and probably never could envision. The SS cards that had been used in the Second World War that identified him along with other prison camp guards had actually been sunk on a ship by allies during the war. And in 1950, there were um, someone who did some digging and found those cars, but they were in too bad of shape to be read at that time. And so they would sit and wait for years until new technology was developed. And when new technology was developed, these uh, illegible cars were then became legible with new technology, and they were able to ascertain the names and positions and ranks of those who had served in these positions. And this evidence led the authorities to come to Mr. Berger's home, who was now 94. Devorah Fish, the director of education for Tennessee Holocaust Commission, said this, every time that somebody is brought to justice, even from 50 years ago or longer, that is a message to the world because we're not going to stop until everybody is brought to justice. Even if, something, even if it's something you've done years ago, it will catch up with you. The neighbors of this man never thought that they had been living next to all these years a Nazi war criminal. They simply just saw an elderly man who had moved many years ago from Germany. But what man cannot see, God can see. And on that, we can absolutely depend. As we return to Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, we find ourselves at a transition point in his letter. Paul is going to present the human situation that we all face apart from the, the gracious work of the Lord Jesus Christ when we stand in the court of heaven. And he's going to begin his argument in this section by laying out what was the Jewish perception of Gentile culture of his day. But he does it in an interesting way. The way that he does it is he draws upon ancient Israelite sins to describe the modern culture that the Gentiles were living so as to set up his audience to ultimately include them for the argument he's going to make. He starts off by indicting the Gentiles, but he ultimately finishes by turning towards the Jews, who most likely could easily see the shortcomings of the Gentiles in their culture and how they had failed to live up to God's standard but could not see their own shortcomings. And Paul does a masterful job of turning the table on them as he develops this argument. Today, we won't have time to look at all that. We're going to develop that over the next several weeks. Today, we're going to simply focus on one verse, verse 18. Here we find, if, if some would refer to as the opening statement to his development of what he's going to do for the next couple of chapters, and what we see here is one writer calls God's saving justice uh, in the preceding verses that Pastor Mike preached about, and this today's text gives the reason for why God's saving justice has come into the world through the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's with those things in mind today that what I want to do is simply to take a few moments and to unpack three things from this verse that I think are relevant for our lives today from this one verse. Let me tell you those three things right up front. They are simply these things. One, God sees. Two, God judges. Three, God delivers. God sees. 
God judges, and God delivers. Let's start with God sees. So Paul makes an astounding claim in this verse. Let's go back and read the verse again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here that term is inclusive. It could be uh, all humans, men, women, boys, and girls. The word I want us to focus on in the text, you'll notice there he uses the word all. Paul's assertion here implies that God is aware of all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humans. If I were to put it another way, it is that God sees all the wickedness that humans do. Now, where might Paul have run into such a concept that he would write these type of words to make this type of assertion? I believe is that Paul gained this from his own Bible reading. Now, remember for Paul and for those first century Christians, that initial first generation, they only had the Old Testament as their Bible, unlike us where we have their writings as the, the New Testament. So he would have most likely have drawn this from the Old Testament, and that's what I want to do today. Go through a few passages that kind of highlight this idea that Paul, as a devout Jew, would have come across and most likely would have informed his understanding for why he would assert what he does here in Romans. If Paul was reading, which I know he did, in the book of Wisdom, which we refer to as the book of Proverbs, he would have run across what we have today listed as our Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 in the English Bible. And it reads this, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In Paul's hymnal book of his day, the book of Psalms, he would have eventually come to chapter 44, verse 20 through 21 in our English Bibles. And he would have read what we have translated here with these words. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. In the scroll of Jeremiah, Paul most likely would have come across Jeremiah 16, 17, where God says, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. In reading through the Old Testament, you would get the concept, you would pick up this idea that God sees all the evil and the good that humans do. Ultimately, nothing escapes his attention. In my Bible, personal Bible reading, what uh, pressed this home for me, this concept, was when I came to Ezekiel chapter 8. The prophet Ezekiel is a prophet of exile. He is many miles away from home, and by supernatural means, God allows him to have privy to information that God is, has access to all the time and in every place. And God takes him on a journey to show him the secret lives of the leaders and the people back at home in Israel. And then God makes a statement that reveals how the people are thinking that sounds eerily familiar to some of the ways that people operate today. I think verse 12 of the chapter sums up nicely what God is getting at when God said this to Ezekiel. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Notice what the Lord says is the thought process of the people there. The Lord does not see us. 
Does that remind you of anyone that you've seen and how they live their life? The Lord does not see us. See, I believe that sometimes the reason why husbands mistreat their wives or my wives mistreat their husbands in the homes is because they function as though the Lord does not see them. The reason why there are children who have smartphones, watch videos that their parents, although they purchased the phone for them, look at videos that they know that their parents would not approve of is because they live under the assumption that God is not aware of what they're doing. The reason college students in college often compromise in their relationships is because they feel as though God is not watching them. The reason why people get on Facebook and connect with people from the past or write statements that offend others intentionally to hurt them is because they forget that the Lord sees. The reason that an employee takes advantage of a timesheet or working conditions for their own good, though it costs the company something, is because they, they believe that they are safe from the Lord's view. The reason the poor are neglected or one person takes advantage of another person in a business deal by means of lying it was because they believe ultimately that there is no awareness by God of what they're doing. And sadly, it even happens in churches because sometimes pastors take their authority and abuse church members because they who should know better have forgotten that the Lord's eye is on everything that they're doing. I would simply ask you today, as I ask myself, is there anything in your life that you're doing that you know is wrong? And yet you've chosen not to repent or cease that behavior because you believe you're functioning under the assumption that God is unaware of how you're living. See, what was true of the ancient Israelites is still true today. Listen to the writer of Hebrews reason with Christians. Chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The writer of Hebrews says, your life is exposed to God. Let me draw upon a New Testament example where we see this play out in the lives of early Christians. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? If you look at that story, you have to believe that they're functioning under the assumption that God does not know what they're doing in private. God is not privy to the conversations that they're having in their home, and thus they proceed under that assumption to go to the apostles, and they say one thing as an untruth, but what they come to find out is that God is aware. God does know, and they don't achieve their desired goal. Instead, they find a very different end. See, I think what the Scripture wants us to understand is this. God sees everything. There's no place that you can hide, no place that you can go. There's no space that you're going to be in where God's eyes will not find you. That brings me to the second thing. How is it or how does God who sees all respond when humans act in evil ways, either against him or against other humans? We find the answer in the verse. Let's go back to the verse of chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The God who sees is also the God who judges. 
God responds with wrath, or might we use the word anger to human wickedness. Now, we should not think of God's anger or wrath in the same way we think about human anger or wrath. Dr. Leon Morris explains that God's wrath is not an emotion characterized by a loss of self-control and a violent concern for self-interest. Instead, God, the wrath of God expresses the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. This conclusion can be confirmed by considering God's own character, of how he describes his own character as he reveals himself to Moses. Let me go to back to a familiar text and read that for you because I think this puts things in context for us when we think about God's wrath. Listen with the Lord, how the Lord describes himself. The, la- the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and we might say generations here, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What we get here from God's character is this, that God displays his wrath after he has displayed much patience with people who are unwilling to repent. And since they will not repent, they ultimately attract God's wrath to themselves. Returning to Romans, we find Dr. Byrd describes here this uh, justice that God displays as what he calls the retributive justice of God, as opposed to what we saw in verses 16 and 17 as the saving justice of God. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy describes retributive justice as being committed to three principles, but let me just give you one. This one principle that those who commit certain acts, kinds of wrongful, wrongful acts, morally deserve to suffer a proportionate punishment. Dr. Berg goes on to say what Paul says about God's wrath here in Romans is in continuity with the Old Testament's depiction of God's anger burning against those engaging in evil, whether kings, nations, or even his own people, Israel. Let me give you a couple examples of how this plays out in the Old Testament where we see that this is true. We'll return to that book that I told you that I read through in the very same chapter, Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 17 and verse 18. Verse 17 opens, and the Lord says to Ezekiel, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit abominations that they commit here? They should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. God had reached the limits of his patience with the people because they were unwilling to listen to all of the preceding voices of the prophets that God had sent to call them to turn away. And because they were unwilling to turn away, God finally reached the end of his patience, and now he's decided to deal with the people. We see a similar pattern in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16 through 20. And I want you to notice what God opens up and says to the prophet who would normally have interceded for the people. As for you, 
do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Now notice here how he lists every member of the family participating in the sin that is going on. The children gather wood. The fathers kindle fire. And the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Everybody in the family is involved in the sin. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods and provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon trees of the field, the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. God tells Jeremiah, because every member of the family, children to the adults, are all involved in the sin and they refuse to turn, my wrath will be poured out. Think about other instances from Scripture, just some of the clear ones that you're familiar with. The overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, children and adults were all involved, Genesis 19. The flood. The entire world locked up in sin. Adam and Eve, the expulsion from the garden. Here, as we see result of the prophets, the exile of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, one to Assyria, the other to Babylon. And lastly and ultimately, the destruction in hell of all unbelievers and liars as the writer of the Revelation so graphically describes at the end of the Bible. Now, if we go back to the verse, we'll notice a few other things about God's wrath that Paul wants to bring out for us. Now, as we continue our journey through the book of Romans, we're going to find out that often when Paul refers to God's wrath, he's looking forward in time to a future event that's going to happen at the end of human history. We see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 5, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 22, and chapter 12, verse 19. However, in this text, if you notice, it's in the present tense. The reality of what Paul says, God's wrath, not only is just a future event, it's already manifest in the world in which we live today. God's anger is already on display against human wickedness and sin. Now, we'll discover what that means in detail in a couple of weeks as that gets unpacked by another member of our teaching team. And also when we get to Romans chapter 13. For now, what we simply need to know is that God's wrath is going to culminate in a future day of wrath where God fully displays it, but it's already present in the world. And that's how we can understand some of the things that are happening in our world is it's God's displeasure with human wickedness. The next thing Paul wants us to understand, notice that the text there, if you look back, he says that this wrath comes from heaven. Psalm 33, I think, helps us understand what Paul means as he draws upon Old Testament understanding. Psalm 33, verse 13 reads, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Heaven is a way of here of simply saying that this wrath is coming from God's very throne. 
the source of the wrath is God. Lastly, he says when we look at the text that God's divine anger is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The object of God's wrath is the wickedness of people. Now, the two words that he uses here, now some see this as describing two different things. The first word describing sins against God and the second word describing sins against other humans. And thus pointing back ultimately to the great Ten Commandments in which there are violations against the first four and the second word describing the violations against the last six. Others see in light of the fact that he uses the same word later in the text in that same verse to describe both things that it's only pointing to one reality. Everything is against God. That people live their lives without any respect for God, and then they thus, because they have no respect for God, live in their own self-interest and ultimately disobey his moral commands. Either interpretation that you take still ends up at the same conclusion. Humans are suppressors of truth. We'll get to unpack that here in the next couple of weeks of what the truth is that they're suppressing. I like the way that Dr. Grant Osborne, though, sums up this idea of this suppressing, this hindering, this seeking to push down the truth. He says the end result of wickedness is to bury the truths of God under a mountain of rationalization and evil behavior. People try to come up with reasons why it's okay that they're doing what they're doing. Or they simply cover it up by doing other evil things. In our community group, one of the things we've been reading, of course, is on by Jerry Bridges, a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And one of the things that he talked about this week in our chapter was one of the things that happens in human lives. People start to make a, a break with sin, and then eventually they say to themselves, when they feel like they've done enough good things, they say, you know, I should give myself an exception this one time. It's okay. I've been doing good. Let me just do this one sin. I'm okay with it. But he says there can be no exceptions. And that's exactly what Paul says here when he uses the word all. It points in the other direction to the fact that God has a zero compromise policy with sin. No exemptions, no exceptions extended to the evil that men and women do. God takes every sin seriously. And those who seek to follow God should follow him and do the same. A few questions for you and myself. Are you rationalizing away any sin in your life? You've come up for reasons of why it's okay for you to do the sin that you're doing. Do you find yourself acting in ways that are more similar to how Paul describes the Gentiles in his day, those who live as though they don't know God? Are you compromising with sin because this is what you like? And you've lowered God's standards down to your own standard. Let me give you an instance. Do you think lying is okay? Do you give yourself a pass with that? God sees. God judges. So what hope do we have considering that humans are sinners? That brings me to my final point. God sees, God judges, but God delivers. Verse 18 connects us back to the preceding two verses by the use of the word for. Notice how the text starts. For. The wrath of God. 
This connects us back to the preceding ideas which Pastor Mike has been preaching about. Let me read those verses to you again just to remind you of what Pastor Mike has already shared with us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here in these two verses, we find God's solution to the human dilemma. Now, we notice the human dilemma around us all the time. We observe it. People are living without regard for God. They're paying no attention to the things he has written down and shared through his revelation in this book we call the Bible. They instead live their lives out of their own personal self-interest, directing themselves by their own desires, their own will, and their own uh, ultimate goals in life. And then they rationalize away their sins and they continue to do them or cover them up with more evil behavior to justify what they're doing. And what we ultimately find out is that God is angered by this and his anger is on display in the world. And it's ultimately going to culminate in a full expression on the day of Christ. But God lets us know how he would prefer for humans to respond. He states it in that same book, Ezekiel chapter 18. Listen to how he reasons with the people. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. God repeats the same sentiment later in the book in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 through 11. God's reasoning with humans is, why would you let your sin destroy you? Turn from your sin. Turn back to God and repent. That's exactly what we see in the verses of Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Paul says, the answer is to repent from our sins, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and through that God will save us from his wrath. I love the way John sums it up very succinctly in one nice little statement in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. As long as a person remains outside of Christ, they live in the realm of God's wrath. This past week in our community group, one of the things we discussed was the things of what our old life was like versus when we came and placed faith in Jesus Christ and some of those changes When we talked about it, as we read through our readings, we noticed that those faculties that God gave to Adam and Eve at the beginning that have been passed down to us by way of the fact of us being their children was corrupted by sin. Our reasoning has been corrupted. Our emotions are corrupted. Our desires are corrupted. Our will is corrupted and our consciences are seared by habitual sin. And without the life of God in us, because we live out these sinful desires that draw us in, as James talks about in James chapter 1, Paul says in Ephesians that we ultimately live lives that store up God's wrath for ourselves. However, 
when we respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel that proclaims to us Jesus, God's anointed one who never sinned but paid for our sins through his death and God bodily raised him from the dead and he's the one who will return to judge the world. When we put faith in him and what he has done as the only means of making us right with God, we are changed. God saves us. He forgives our iniquity, our sins, our transgressions, and our trespasses. He gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. He makes our consciences alive so there is a sensitivity to sin that we did not have before so that we don't need external motivation to cause us to move in the right direction. But when we sin, whether external forces are to our favor or against us, we still will move in the right direction because the internal spirit would not allow us to remain in sin. He gives us new desires so that there's something birthed in us that we did not have before. This desire to live, to please God, to love God, to live our lives for him and not just for ourselves. In other words, he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. See, Paul says there's only one way to be rescued from God's wrath. It's not on your terms, not on my terms, not on anybody else's terms. God has provided one way. That way is Jesus, and nothing else will deliver us from his just wrath. If you're a professing believer here today, I would simply say to you, you say, well, hey, I already have faith in Jesus. Then continue in the path of faith. Don't abandon the path of faith. But what I love about this message that Paul proclaims in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says it is the power of salvation, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. For all who believe, right? To those who believe, even to kings and queens, it has the power to save them. Let me close with this illustration. The story is told of Queen Victoria when she went to attend a service at St. Paul's Cathedral. On that particular day, The message that was proclaimed convicted her. And she was interested greatly in what was being proclaimed. And so afterwards, she asked her chaplain, can anyone really be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? Her chaplain went on to say, not really. And that was published in the court news. A minister by the name of John Townsend read the court news and was convicted in his heart in light of what the chaplain had said to the queen and thought that he ought to respond in light of what had been told to her. And so he wrote this note to the queen. To her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3, 16, Romans 10, 9 through 10. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, Minister John Townsend. John Townsend, of course, took into his confidence others as they began to pray about this message that was sent to the queen, hoping that it would impact her. About two weeks later, he received a message in reply, and this is what it read. To John Townsend, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you, signed Queen Victoria. After Queen Victoria's discovery of Christian assurance, she used to carry around a small booklet to give away. It was titled Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. 
And this is what she found in Christ. And this is what we all find in Christ. Because of what Christ has done, we can find assurance and safety that we never have to face the wrath of God because God's wrath fell on him so that it won't fall on us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you most of all for what Jesus has done. And it is because of that we have hope. For, Lord, when we take up the list of our sins, our iniquities, the things that we have willfully done against your word, against others, and against you, how many for days without number we have forgotten you, we have lived as though you did not see what we were doing. Because we have Christ, because we have turned to him, because you have called us into relationship with him, we don't have to fear the day of judgment. And we know that even right now we have eternal life. Because our faith rests in him. We give you praise, honor, and glory. That because we're in Christ, your wrath no longer abides on us. But we have life, joy, and despite the hardships that may come in life, we know that we will ultimately live with you forever. And that we will be transformed to look just like Jesus. And so we give you praise today and we thank you for this opportunity to be given a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done. We pray for our time now, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.